I went to a sunglass store and I said, is there an eye doctor in here? I have a shadow coming out my eye and I can't see. And they took me in the back and they had my eye go through this machine and they said, you're having a redhead attachment. You need to go get surgery right the second or you could be blind by the end of the day. And I was like, I have to go to Art Miami. They're like, no, no, you're, you're not going to Art Miami. And they got me an Uber. And two hours later, I was having emergency redhead attachment surgery. What was going through your mind as this is happening? Because like, that's your dominant right eye, the eye that you take photographs with. You just have to embrace all situations. What else are you going to do? When I'm in traffic, I just embrace it because there's nothing you can, there's nothing you can do. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go through that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. As a photographer, David's eyes are his livelihood. His vision was everything, but somehow David rugs it off. He takes it stoically. He has a lack of concern for any roadblocks. I mean, David has always believed that he would achieve great things. I think that's why after traveling around the world to 13 countries at 18, he decided to try to make it as a commercial photographer. He started taking classes at New York's Parsons School of Design and subsequently tried to make it in the biz, but just faced rejection after rejection. However, obstacles are no match for David. He'd eventually strike out on his own as an artist selling his art to Elton John at one of his first shows. Now he has 10 published photo books, sells his artwork all over the world, and it's a coveted thing to own a Drebin. This interview is wide ranging, and so we'll start in an odd spot with a little steaminess. So something last time you talked to me is about you were talking about money and sex as being some themes within your photos. When was the last time you had sex? Okay, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I don't really love sex that much because I feel like when you're having sex, you kind of look like a monkey. You look <laughs> like a monkey, right? So I, I find that I observe myself observing myself. And I think the girls look way better when they're having sex than guys do, mm. right? So I'm not really that big into sex. I like I like to feel like the king. So I like to do other things. That's interesting because it seems like sex and women are uh, like a focal point of your art. And so like, I would imagine that that translates to like some hyperactivity from the artist, but you, you're saying not really. No, because I'm not more like a gynecologist. I don't, I don't fuck my patients. For me, I care way more about getting the photograph. Unless they're my girlfriend, I really keep it really separate the way a gynecologist would. I care way more about making my photograph than I do about fucking. And a lot of photographers give other photographers a really bad name because they use the camera as a way to get the girl. And that doesn't interest me in any way. It's just not my style. I'm not into it. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a good call out. So uh, to come back to the question. Oh, you, oh, you want me to actually <laughs> answer the question? Yeah. A couple of days ago, I'm a very deep, shallow, deep person. And that can be really frustrating. When yeah, I can see that. What do you mean? How could you see that? You have this wealth of experience. And I think you think very deeply, but you also have this flashiness that's like the shallowness as well. And so there's like this shallowness on the outside, but this depth when you actually think, like it seems like you're self-aware of the things in which you indulge. But before all the, the game playing and the creativity that I think has brought you to this incredible skyline uh, behind you, I mean, what a view. 
I want to talk about Canada because that's where you were born. So can you tell me like your first memory in Canada? I would say right off the top, right off the top of my head, when I think about my first memories of Canada, I think about my dad leaving my mother when I was six years old. And I think that was a really big moment for me looking back when your parents get divorced at a really young age like that, it can be life-changing in a major, major way. And it has been for me. Do you know why it happened? They just weren't meant to be together. But even now at my age, I still think about my childhood and a lot of people need to go back and think about their childhoods and really never lose the kid inside. And that's a big, big thing for me is to never lose the kid inside and to be optimistic and be very positive and be childlike. Cause I, I like people with childlike playful qualities. And I find that not a lot of people are that funny and not a lot of people are that playful. And I look for playful people and funny people. So how did each of your parents encourage that playfulness or that inner child or not encourage it? Oh, both my parents are very funny. So I take it from them for sure. I like, and my grandfather was very funny too. I like funny people. I like humor, sense of humor. You gotta be smart to be funny. So when your dad left, like where did that leave you and your sister? With my mom. He just took off. He didn't want to be responsible. A lot of, a lot of men love that feeling in their penis but they don't realize that it's a baby batter making machine and it's a baby batter making machine that produces babies. We are all the product of someone, a man having an orgasm. I mean, I think we are at least, you never know any now, now these days, but I personally was a product of my dad, Sheldon Lee Drebin, having an orgasm inside my mother who was Rosemary Drebin. And nine months later I was born and I never asked to be born. So here I am. I'm just an orgasm that came to life. That's one way to look at it. Uh, when your dad left, um, how did your mom raise you? What were some of the, like the core memories that you had? I mean, she was a photographer, right? Or she did some photography. My mother was obsessed with making sure that her kids were going to be okay. And she ended up marrying my stepfather, Mr. Morton Robert Goldhar, who ended up being like a father to me and treated me like a son who has been an incredible influence in my life and is going to be 90 years old this year. So I've been very, very lucky. And my mother always made me feel like I could be and do whatever I wanted to be and do. And my biological father kind of laughed at my dreams and thought I was crazy. Do you remember a time when he did that? Pretty much every time I speak to him on the phone, which we don't really, we don't speak anymore. So, you know, you just got to get to a point where if people don't make you feel magical, then why interact with them regardless of who they are? How did your mom encourage that like magic in you? Like, like when did you start, I guess, showing that you had these dreams of being something more than maybe what you were at the time? I mean, it started when I was six years old and I wanted to play hockey, seven years old. And my mother would take me to the rink and I would play hockey. So my mother's been incredibly encouraging my whole life, regardless of what I wanted to do. It didn't really matter what I was going to do. She was more concerned with who I am. That's why whenever I look at people, I look at character and I look at who they are. I don't really care what they do. I care more about who they are. How did you start figuring out who you are? Up until I found photography in my early 20s, I was an athlete and I tried many different sports that played hockey. 
I played tennis, I played squash, I played, I was skiing and I tried many different sports. And what I learned through sports was a sense of accomplishment and competition and wanting to win. And I was always encouraged to learn from when I lost to be better the next time I played those sports. And that was a real catalyst to the way I am today, which is I'm competitive with myself and I compare myself to myself and I'm in my own world. So to be specific, I was very bad in school and I was always distracted in school. And I went to many different schools because I just never really felt like I ever really fit in. I mean, you said you were you were, you were not like too great in school. Do you remember any moments that made you feel that? I just did not like the topics that I was taught at school and I would was rarely entertained and I always wanted to be entertained. So I was I was kicked I was kicked out of camp for being rebellious. You were kicked out? What did you do? Well, I was smoking joints when I was 15. I got kicked out for that. I was the I was the class clown. I was I just like to either and still to this day entertain or be entertained and I felt that school was extremely boring for me. And I went to many different schools, but because I went to many different schools, I met many different types of people, which I'm really grateful for today. Who was uh, someone you met during those high school years that you feel was formative? I find that the old friends that I made when I was just growing up are the most real friends as opposed to the new friends I make today that see people as what they do as opposed to who they are. I don't take it personally. That's the difference between now and my childhood and you now and your childhood and everyone listening now in their childhood. There's a difference between growing up and, and getting to know people for who they are and then getting to a certain point where it's about what you do. And I miss the, the days of looking at people for who they are as opposed to uh, what they do. So as you kind of discovered who you were through through high school and these like different relationships, it seems like like this this uh, career as as a waiter was like an undercurrent, as it is with most like artists, uh, especially in New York and LA. Um, do you remember when you got your first job as a waiter and where it was? My mother got me a job at a restaurant called CC Trattoria when I was 13 years old as a busboy. And I'll never forget how they treated me like shit. And so many of the people that I know that I know today who were customers in that restaurant. And I see these people still, whenever I go back to Toronto, I'm like, oh, I remember you. I was a bus boy. And I remember how you treated me like shit. What did they do? Slave-like. Just like, do this. Get this, do this, get this. I don't like this, fix that. Yeah, disrespect. What do you thought, I thought it taught you? Like like when you were like, like 13, 14, 15, in this like busboy job with these people treating you like shit? Like, was there some thing in the back of your mind? Like, I'm going to prove these people wrong one day. What was the thought? The thought was, I never want to be like you. I'll never be like you. And the days of working as a busboy and then a waiter, which I've done all over the world, were the foundation for me to learn about customer service and to learn how to treat people and to often not be like the people who would treat me like shit. So whenever I go to a restaurant, I'm always super grateful for everybody in the restaurant. For me, if I want to get to know someone, I go to a restaurant with them and I watch how they treat waiters. 
and stuff. It's very important to me. It's like number one thing, actually. Let's go to a restaurant. Let's go for a drink. The way they talk to waiters is very important to me. You also said uh, uh, around the world because you started traveling around, what, 18 or 19. Um, how, what inspired that travel and, and how did you start doing that? I graduated from a crazy high school, my third high school, and everyone I knew was going to university and it just didn't feel right to me. So at 18, I had worked as a waiter in Toronto at a restaurant called Joe Allen's. And I told my mom and my stepdad that I want to go around the world at 18. And they said, no, you're not. You're going to university. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm going to travel around the world. And I saved money. I worked doubles all summer. And I went around the world at 18. To this day, I remember I went, I remember I flew from Toronto to LA. Then I went from LA to Tahiti, Tahiti to v Fiji. Then I went from Fiji to New Zealand. I went all over New Zealand. Then I went to Australia. Then I went to Bali. Then I went to Singapore. Then I went to Malaysia. Then I went to Thailand. And then I went to Greece and then I went to Italy and I went to Switzerland Then I went to London and then I went and I flew back to Toronto. And when I came back, I then had applied to go to university. I went to University of British Columbia. I was 19 when I came back and I went there for three years. And I remember that I fell asleep in every single class I ever took when I went to the University of British Columbia. There was never a class I didn't fall asleep in because all the courses were so boring to me. Well, I imagine after traveling around the world, like class would be pretty boring comparatively. I'll never forget. I want to understand human beings sorted up. And I took an anthropology class and I studied for eight hours a day for five days for this test. And I remember I got four out of 20 on the test, 20%. And I was so devastated. I couldn't believe it. And that's when I realized I'm not going to be great in university. I'll, I'll never forget that test. Four out of 20. And I imagine like, you're like, oh, like to understand humans, I've done that. I've traveled around the world. I've been to all these places. You're probably talking to uh, incredible people. And and something that I, I've found in, in my traveling is like my, the experiences that I recount when I come back from a travel are usually not about the things that I've seen, but it's about the conversations I've had. Um, and I'm wondering like, what, what are the, the, the things that you brought with you, um, when you came back, like in terms of your mental models and, and how you understood people, were there any conversations that you had going from Tahiti to Bali to LA, all these different places that changed your worldview and allowed you to understand humans better? The one lesson that I learned from traveling around the world is it's never the places, it's always the faces. You remember the people that you meet far more than the places that you went to. I remember a few months into my trip, someone would ask me, what, what language do you speak? And I, I would say, I speak English and I speak Badi. They're like, Badi? What's Badi? And I'd be like, Badi language? <laughs> Because it really is about body language. It's not about language. And you could actually get along amazing with someone just with body language as opposed to language. Interesting concept. Body language. Can you tell me a story about how you use that? I, I mean, I, I would love to get specific. Like, I, I want to hear, like, something, you know, you were in some crazy location. You met someone that, that changed how you saw the world a bit. I don't really remember specifics. I just remember... 
I like occasionally having illicit adventures that are secrets. And I've always found that, that through my traveling that I'd rather be the other one than the one. What does that mean? Like when it comes to relationships, I'd rather be someone to fantasize as opposed to someone to experience. And that's what my work's about as well. It's not about the image that you see, it's the image that you don't see and that you imagine. And I find that when it comes to relationships, that sex is a marketing tool to lure someone in, but sex will never sustain a relationship. And I think that the best relationships actually don't have sex because love will always grow over time and sex will always diminish over time. And I use sex as marketing in my work with a side of love. That's what my work's all about. It's love with a side of sex and sex with a side of love. And it's the duality of both. So you're, you're back in Vancouver, you're back in Canada. Um, uh, how do you decide to like play to your strengths? Because obviously school wasn't your strength. Uh, experiencing the world uh, and, and translating that uh, with uh, love with a side of sex uh, was. So how did you begin to transition from the traditional educational path to, you know, the, the, the Drebin style of education? I came to New York, I was 21 or 22, and I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and I was the worst actor in my class, which was the best experience I've had to date. My two-month program at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts far outweighed going to Parsons School of Design, going to the University of British Columbia. That two months was a game changer for me because I was so bad in every class, but I loved doing improv. And I realized that I was a creative person and I wanted to be behind the camera instead of being in front of the camera. And that's what acting school did for me. Was that an easy realization to come to? Well, it didn't happen right away. So I went for a two-month program to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and I went back to Vancouver. I had headshots taken, and then I majored in theater at the University of British Columbia and kept the acting school going until I realized that I was never going to be an actor. I had a roommate at the time, and he was studying photography. And I thought, that's the last thing in the world I would ever want to do, be a photographer, ever. And one day this guy came home and laid out all these photographs on the table. And it was that moment where I saw my entire life flash in front of me when their souls jumped off the page. And I said, I got to go back to New York and go to Parsons School of Design because that was the best art school at the time that I thought that I should go to, to make it in the toughest city in the world. What do you think it was that like when you say souls leapt off the page, what does that mean? I saw so much more than the image itself. It wasn't about the picture. It was about something magical. Photography in the beginning was a way for me to see my imagination come to life. It was being able to have a thought, use a camera as a tool, and see the magic of the thought through a photograph. And Parsons ideally would be able to like have you hone that raw creative potential into something that was like physical and of this world. 
what was great about Parsons was the location, New York City, and the facilities. But all the teachers that I had at Parsons were just failed artists. And a lot of them are probably still teaching at Parsons. And I learned through Parsons that if you can't make it and you fail at making it, just be a teacher. It's a business. I think it's a business. I know it's a business. I went to Parsons. The moment I graduated, I never heard from anybody ever again. Parsons is great as a brand and it was great to use the facilities, but it's a cash cow for education seeming to be an education, but really is a business model. After you graduate from Parsons, how do you begin to even think about making it as an artist so you don't just become another Parsons teacher? I never thought about making him as an artist. I originally wanted to be a commercial photographer and work for magazines. Really? So it wasn't about uh, artists. It was just about working as a photographer? I didn't even know what artist meant. What, what, what is an artist? I, never, I, I still don't even consider myself an artist, actually. I just produce limited edition luxurious products and work through galleries all over the world. I've never introduced myself as an artist. I don't see myself as an artist. I see myself as a, as a creator of beautiful things that people love. Tell me about like some of those jobs that you got after college. So I was 26 when I graduated and I was fine with working as a waiter at a restaurant uptown and making photographs during the day. And then I built a portfolio and I contacted every single agent in New York to represent me. And every single agent said no, except for one. And I was represented by this one agent, her name was Monica Nation. I'll never forget her. And I ended up getting a Salem campaign, a Salem cigarette campaign, because her other four photographers couldn't do the job. So you're fifth in line. Well, I was making $100 a night as a waiter, and then I got a job, and I made $32,500 for two days worth of work. $32,000? In 1990. 1998, I did a Salem cigarette campaign. I was working at a restaurant called The Kiosk. And I'll never forget, I went back to the restaurant the day after I did the campaign. And the manager, Renee, said to me, you're fired. He was so jealous of me. And I'll never forget saying to this guy, you know what? One day you'll be cleaning toilets when I left. I was so pissed off. And then I ran to the guy a decade later. I was like, what do you do? He's like this. Like, actually, it's crazy. I'm a plumber now. Nothing against being a plumber, but I didn't hear him saying he was a plumber. I heard him saying that he's cleaning toilets. It's crazy. I'm a, I'm a psychic person too. I could read people very quickly, but I had a lot of rejection. I went all over the world with my portfolio. I took my, my black portfolio to every single magazine in New York. They all said no to me. It was a massive struggle and the struggle never ends. It's just a different struggle. I really want to centralize really quick around this first success because going from making $100 a night to $16,200 a night is a massive jump. What did that agent see in you? Like, why did you send this all the way around? Everyone said no. Let me try something. See this? These are letters I wrote to myself in 1998 in my diary about all the rejection I was facing in New York, but I knew I had this talent and how it made me feel. And I just, I've always been on a mission. I'm not really sure exactly what I'm chasing, but I actually loved working as a waiter. Sometimes I even miss being a waiter and the camaraderie that you had when you're working alongside people with dreams, especially in New York City. 
And I went back to work as a waiter and I got fired, which was devastating for me. And then I just stopped working as a waiter and I lived off the money I made from that job. And then I didn't work again for a month. But how did you get paid so much? I don't understand that. Like, like, like most, what, why were you getting paid so much? That's just the business. I have roommates that are photographers that are not getting like these crazy deals. Like, how does that happen? Okay. It, it is a totally different time now than it was then. And that's a whole other story. But then there was a lot more opportunity to be a commercial photographer. And it had nothing to do with what you looked like. It had everything to do with what your talent was, I thought at the time. So I was looking for work as a service. I never for a million years ever thought of my work as a product. But in the end, I was a failed commercial photographer because I had such a unique style that translated more to be the brand than to work for the brand. After that campaign, did you try to get other campaigns like it? Yeah, I, I, I tried getting lots of campaigns and I went and dropped my portfolio off at many magazines. It was very hard to get magazine work and there was very little pay. I just grinding, taking my portfolio on the subway all over New York and dropping it off and wanting to meet people and meeting more people and meeting more people. And there was a real community back then. Did you get more work to that scale? Yeah, I left that agent and I went to another agent and then I started getting a lot of work. I did a New York Times campaign. This was during the dot-com years. So I did dot-com campaigns. I did Mercedes wow. campaigns. I did tons of car campaigns. But my two really big breaks were getting a Gatorade campaign in the late 90s where I photographed the biggest stars, Michael Jordan, Vince Carter, Mia Hamm, Derek Jeter, Peyton Manning. Wow. And I would do this repeatedly for a couple of years, this campaign where they'd sweat coming down their face. And that was a huge break for me. And then I followed that with a Mitsubishi campaign, which at the time, Mitsubishi had the coolest car commercials in the late 90s. I did probably 100 campaigns for them. And then I was rolling. How did you get those though? Because I got an agent. I found I found an agent who represented photographers who landed me these campaigns based on my talent. Is it just that simple where it's like you have a good agent and you're talented and you'll just get these jobs? No. Well, it's different now than it was then. Then it was about having a portfolio with images. There was no email. There were no cell phones. There was no internet. There's no Instagram. There's no social media. It was human connection, black portfolio, acetate. I used to go and print my own work at the lab. I'd make many different portfolios. I do mailings where I'd have all these images that I produce with a designer stuffed into envelopes and mailed to advertising agencies and magazines all over the world. So that was then. That's not now though. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like you took advantage of it. When you are having all of these campaigns with like Gatorade and these these massive wins what were some decisions you made to make sure that this wouldn't be a moment and then be gone but this was a career I realized that all these jobs were one night stands and they had no legs and I thought to myself how could I stay relevant and not just be a one trick pony getting a job for a day they pay you then done I was going from one night stand to one night stand, which was like going from job to job to job. And then I realized around 2003, 2004, that I wanted to sell my work as a product and not be a service where I felt extremely used. 
I felt way more appreciated when people would buy my work as a product, as art, a large limited edition print on a wall, than when they would hire me for a service. It just became about the money. It wasn't even about the work. It was all disposable work. Magazines are thrown in the garbage after 30 days, but books last forever. And that was a transition that I made in my mind. How did you begin to do that? By not getting jobs anymore. And by realizing that I didn't want to cater to people in the photo community, I wanted to cater to people who wanted to buy art, who weren't in the industry of photography and advertising. Because I didn't like those people. So when did you start selling those limited edition prints? And what was your mindset around creating the first one or like the first set? I wasn't thinking about creating the first one. I thought about the works I'd already created and packaging the works that I'd already created that were in my portfolio to try to get commercial jobs. And I thought, where do I go to make this happen? And I was doing these Mitsubishi ads in LA and I found out about a photography gallery in LA called Fahey Klein Gallery. And that's where I had my first group show in 2004 called Unbound Youth. And Elton John walked into the gallery and literally bought many of my works. And it was that moment when I realized that I was onto something because I had the external validation that matched my own internal validation. And from there, it literally has not stopped since that moment in 2004. Not for one day. And we're talking 20 years later. That was the moment for me. Wow. Can you tell me about getting paid for that? It had nothing to do with getting paid. I never cared about the money. And I still don't care about the money. I agree that it's important not to care about the money, but it is a sign that what you make is valuable to someone else. It's like a concrete sign that you're not just putting out stuff that is just almost like like self-fallatiating or anything. Like, it, like this is actually having value to other people and people want this and the world wants this and this is something that you should continue to create. It's it's not the only way to get that, but I think it is a common one. And so like when you had this like photo, it was movie star, right? That was like fetched for like 3000. That's a sign where it's like, okay, not like my, my work is valuable outside of Mitsubishi. So we're, we're like valuable outside of Gatorade. It's valuable just in itself. It doesn't need to be promoting anything else. It can just be art in itself. And it's like, this is a thing I'm putting into the world. And now the world sees that this is directly valuable without any other attachment. And that feels like the beginning of the next phase of your career of like this piece of thing that I created is valuable in itself. And I imagine that feeling must have been exhilarating. But it didn't surprise me because I knew that this was supposed to happen. It always surprised me when people weren't interested in, in what I was doing because all I wanted to do was do great work. I never really thought about the money. I just wanted to be in demand and I wanted to make great work. You know, whenever I think about making money, I don't make any money. But whenever I think about making great work, the money always comes later because money is a byproduct of winning and I like to win. I'm not focused on money. I'm focused on winning. And that comes from my childhood of being a competitive athlete and being the best tennis player in my camp or being a goalie or playing squash and losing a lot and being frustrated by losing and rejection. You know, the rejection I found from my own father has been a huge force for me to not reject myself. 
I think that uh, often is like a motivating factor for super successful people, right? There's some abandonment by a parent and that's what drives you to prove. It wasn't abandoned. It was more like laughing at my dreams. Did he not leave? Yeah, but I will tell you this though. There are moments in your, in your life that you never forget. And for me, my dad was an MC, stand-up comedian at a club that I used to go to with both of my dads, my stepdad and my dad, when I was a kid called the Cambridge Club in Toronto. And my dad asked me to come and witness him do a stand-up routine for 10 minutes at a black tie event. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go see you. And I'll never forget the 10 minutes that he did stand up. He was so fucking spectacular. He was so funny. I was laughing so hard and I thought, oh my God, this guy who happens to be my father is a next level comedic talent and never got paid for it. Never had any notoriety doing it. And he was as good as anyone I'd ever seen ever. And I'm a really tough critic because it was my dad. And that was a huge motivating force for me that with my talent, no matter what, I was going to be recognized and I was going to go for it because there's nothing that bothers me more than wasted talent. And I know so much wasted talent and I was not going to be wasted talent. I've given up so much to not have my talent wasted and I grind every single day since 1991. Every fucking day. I can see that. And it started to have even uh, even greater success. I mean, like in 2005, you had Elton John buy one of your photographs. How did that happen? Well, I was just saying before that Elton John bought multiple photographs from a group show that I had at Fahey Klein Gallery in LA. That type of external gratification matched my own internal gratification that I'd always had since I found photography. That's when you started to have like gallery after gallery and you started to have your own solo exhibitions too. So like, how did that continue and how did you keep the ball from rolling? Once you start and you're focused on something all day, every single day, instead of chasing, I was attracting by having these exhibitions and other galleries seeing that I was having exhibitions and they wanted to give me exhibitions and then by having more shows, I had more shows, I had more shows. I've got a lot of shows coming up right now because I was attracting as opposed to chasing. I love that image. Do you think that applies to everything in your life? Like romantic relationships, friendships, career? Is that how you approach everything? Well, it's interesting. I like to reach out to people. I don't wait for my phone to ring, but I'm not really chasing. I, I'm attracting. So it's a bit of a contradiction. So I don't wait for people to call me. I will call people. But at the same time, I'm building gardens to attract the right people to come into my space to create magic together. And I'm very aware of magical experiences and madness experiences. And I stay away from the madness, but I create art that has madness. But in my personal life, I only want to be surrounded by magic. How do you discover whether the people in your life are the magical kind and that support that? Well, I do this little test when I meet anybody, which is that I don't really make an opinion on anybody until 90 days of knowing them because people will talk, but I don't hear people's words. I don't even watch people's actions. I notice patterns and it's the patterns that I pay attention to, not the words nor the actions. What are some red flag patterns that you notice or green flag for that matter? 
I look for solid characters who do what they say and say what they do. Do you think uh, as you've grown, I mean, have you done like exhibition after exhibition, your name has gotten more familiar? I, I imagine there is this moment where you will walk into some parties or some rooms and you'll have some idea that people know who you are already. Like you'll have this reputation perceive yourself. There's this undercurrent of, do they like me for what I do or for who I am? I imagine that becomes something harder to suss out and also becomes something that's more common as you gain more success. So how do you deal with that? There are two types of people who walk into a room. One person walks in a room and says, here I am. And the other person walks into a room and says, there you are. And I'm the there you are person. I'm not a here I am person. I don't think about walking into a room and how people see me. I go out to see. I don't go out to be seen. But people do see you. You go to a party maybe and people be like, oh, that's David Trevin, right? People have so many different versions of you in their minds that what people think about you is none of your business. I think about what other people think of themselves. Because when you think about what other people think about you, that's ego. And I like to leave with my mind and not my ego. If I walk into a room, one of my exhibitions, and I've had many exhibitions all over the world, I don't walk in the room and go, hey, I'm David Drabbit. I walk in the room and I say, thank you so much for coming. And sometimes I won't even introduce myself if they don't even know who I am. And, and I'll ask them what they think about the art. And I'll say, is David Drebin even at this exhibition? They're like, I think he's coming. I'm like, let me know when he's here. <laughs> I've been at Art Miami during Art Basel for many, many years. And I've often sold my work through my galleries, pretending to be a salesperson and not actually being myself. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> what, is it, what does it feel like to interact with people totally without yourself almost? It's the best. I love to meet people at Art Miami during Art Basel and ask people what they, if they don't, if we don't have a relationship already, if the artist is here, what they think about the work, who is this guy? What's his name? David, what David Drebin? Wow. <laughs> that sounds interesting. What an interesting name. Double D is the artist going to be here today. And they're like, I think he might be coming. I'm like, wow, well, let me know it. And then I'll say to the gallery, I'll take that piece on the hole right there. I'll pretend I'm a collector. And then often collectors are like, wow, you're going to buy that work. Well, then I'm going to buy that work too. That's awesome. So you're creating that hype. It's a world of people who think about what other people think before they think. And I use that to my advantage. So don't you have to participate in that that thinking about thinking world and that essentially like hype built on falsehood to sell at the magnitude and scale that you do? I just want to have fun, man. And for me, I crave connection and I crave fun. And if the sales come, the sales come. Every situation is different. No situation is the same. But what is consistent throughout all situations is my need to either be entertained or to entertain myself and to have fun. Because that's the goal for me always is to have fun and be free. What do you think your community looks like when that is at the center? I'll show you. I'll show you. Let me show you. Let me show you. Let me show you already. My community is all in my mind. I've got so many tabs open in my mind that the greatest community we could ever create are all the voices in our minds. Do you think that's all you need? That's my community. My inner voice. Do you not think you need friendships? Of course you need friendships. I've got great friends that I've, that I've had for many years all over the world that all speak many different languages where English isn't their first language. But ultimately, 
the greatest community that you'll ever truly be a part of are the voices in your imagination. Because one thing I've learned after many years is that strangers can become friends and friends can become strangers. And people come and go. And that's okay. What does your close community look like now? Whenever I meet people for the first time, I always think to myself, what is important to you? And what are your intentions? And that's my measuring stick for everyone that I meet. I built an incredible community all over the world for many, many years of galleries that I work with. I have an art liaison that I work with based in Paris. I have basically photographed the same muses for almost 20 years. I rarely photographed new people because like famous movie directors who work with the same talent again and again and again, they know what they're looking for. And the muses who are some of my best friends, we have a vision together. And I'm open, but I don't really want to train a new muse because it's all about building trust. And a man with a camera and a woman posing in front of the camera, there's a lot of trust that needs to be cultivated. And interestingly enough, I'm actually very good at photographing men too, but there's just no market for the photographs that I've made of men, except for the campaigns that I've done. Never really sold any photographs of men before, except one image called Champion, which is the moment that Manny Pacquiao became a legend in the early 2000s, which is one of the greatest sports and boxing images of all time. That's what people have told me. That's what I feel. And, and I only made an edition of six and very famous people bought those images. I've had to sign non-disclosure agreements where I can't promote to the world some of the people who've purchased my work. And that's just part of it. I let many famous people buy my work, but I am not authorized to let the world know that because that was a condition to purchasing the work. Why do you think that's a condition? Who knows? I don't think that way. It's the way they think. It's not the way I think. Who knows? Discretionary income doesn't want to be promoted. It's more of an American thing. I never had this in Europe. Cool. Okay. December 5th, 2019. When do you start to realize something's wrong with your eye? I was at Art Basel at Art Miami. It was my biggest day of the year. And I had a shadow slowly cupping up my eye. And I had no idea what this was. And I went to sleep. Woke up the next morning and it was literally halfway up my eye and I was going to go to the gym. But before I went to the gym, I went to a sunglass store and I said, is there an eye doctor in here? I have a shadow coming out my eye and I can't see. And they took me in the back and they had my eye go through this machine and they said, you're having a redhead attachment. You need to go get surgery right the second, or you could be blind by the end of the day. And I was like, I have to go to Art Miami. They're like, no, no, you're, you're not going to Art Miami. And they got me an Uber. And they told me not to put my head down. And I went to the Uber like this. And I went to a place called Baskin Palmer. And two hours later, I was having emergency red attachment surgery. What was going through your mind as this is happening? Because like, that's your dominant right eye, the eye that you take photographs with. So like, what are you, what's going through your head? There's a really great book. It's called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And whenever you have bad experiences, you have to embrace bad experiences, embrace good experiences, because there's a 100% chance in every single person's life that a bad day is coming. So you have to be positive 
in all experiences because that's what man's search for meaning is all about. So you were still positive and even in that experience? Totally positive. I became friends with the eye surgeon, Dr. Yanuzi. I became friends with the anesthesiologist. And you just have to embrace all situations. What else are you going to do? When I'm in traffic, I just embrace it because there's nothing you can, there's nothing you can do. I felt very lucky that I was 10 minutes away from one of the top retina detachment centers that fixed this problem in Miami. So I was grateful that I was in the right place at the right time. Then I had COVID really bad where I couldn't breathe and, and my oxygen was 82. That was like eight months later. And I'd call 911. I was living in Miami at the time. I wasn't intubated, but that was also an amazing experience. I became friends with the doctors and the nurses and the food wasn't so bad in the hospital, but the needles made me crazy. It was always getting another needle, another needle. But I had a great attitude in that experience as well. You know, at the end of the day, it all comes down to your attitude in all situations. So I've never really felt successful, but I've always been incredibly ambitious. And I've learned to enjoy every experience, whether it's good or bad. There aren't ever really losses. They're only learning experiences. So what do you think is most important to you right now? Like, has there been any development in your philosophies around the art that you're trying to put into the world, the the beauty that you're trying to put into the world, the magic you're trying to put into the world? And I'm curious, like, what are some of the things that you maybe believed when you were 26 about, like, what you wanted to create that have changed? The early years were about chasing, and now it's more about attracting. That's a big thing. And also enjoying the ride and not being so focused on a destination that doesn't exist. And what are you most excited about for the future? So my new book, Flirting with Danger, was just delivered to my publishers, and they sent me an image of the book cover today with the embossed cover. And I'm currently organizing exhibitions of book launches all over the world starting in September with galleries that I've worked with for years. I'm also really excited to give a copy of my book to my collectors all over the world. You know, a lot of people, a lot of artists and photographers, when they make books, they promote where the books can be purchased. And I'm always thinking, why don't you give your books to your best collectors? Instead of thinking to get these people to buy your books, give, give it away. And so many people are thinking about what they can get as opposed to what they can give. I'm always thinking about what I can give to people. I want to give my book to buy collectors all over the world. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think like rewarding the people that have supported you is like, you know, that loyalty is super important. Do you feel like you've basically been able to do that since you were 26, since you like got into this whole racket? No, I think this is a, I think when I made the transition from chasing to attracting, as you get older, you get a little bit more grateful and a little bit more calm. So I'm more in more of a grateful stage than in a desperate chasing choose me stage. When do you feel like that switched? I think in the last couple of years, it really switched for me after I had those health experiences where there was a time when I couldn't see and I couldn't breathe. So the fact that I had almost had my vision taken away from me and the recovery was grueling for a long time and I couldn't breathe. So when you can't see and you can't breathe, all you want to do is be able to see and to be able to breathe. And that was my motivation in that year. Please let me see and please let me breathe. And ironically enough, I never made more sales than I was laying in a hospital bed 
during COVID. Yeah. How did you do that? Because that was with the diamond dust print. So like, how did you come up with that concept? I just released my new diamond dust collection just before I got COVID really bad. And when I was in the hospital, I just started selling my work like crazy. I couldn't talk to any of my galleries calling me, but I could email them. And I never made more sales in a 10 day period than when I was in the hospital for those 10 days. How many sales did you make? It has nothing to do with the amount of sales, but I was just trying to survive. So it's never really how much money you make or how many things that you have. It's all about being on the right path for you at the time. Not to be all cliche, but if you are driven and you're relentless every single day, all day, for a sustained period of time, and you love what you do, how could you not be successful? At least try. I think trying is the new success, far more than success itself. And like the fact that you were able to turn being in the ICU into a win, I feel like that speaks to the level that you try and that you do succeed. Is there anything that you want to like leave, you know, maybe someone who's like around early 20s and they're just starting their career, any piece of advice that you'd want to give to those people? Always listen to that really quiet voice in your gut that is speaking to you and not the voices that you hear from other people but the voices that speak to you within yourself and to listen to that voice because the gut always knows the gut always knows thank you so much for listening if you haven't already make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend if you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Ashley Jimenez with support from Jessica Morales, Miley Lipton, Siyu Pan, Kenny Ray, Josie Yo, and Merritt Hill. Our outreach and research team lead is Desiree Nunez with support from Marissa Granados, Monica Lee, Sarah Tiersma. And yellow. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.